podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Forged in the fires of undersoil heating. Stronger than the steel of a stadium roof. Their name is uttered in anguish and ecstasy. It's all about the football gods. All they can do is hope they're smiling on them. Never seen, never heard, but with ultimate power, these are the football gods. With my diesel claim. Their names are part of football folklore. They're often turned to in times of need. They can be a fan's last resort. But who are the football gods? In this weekly podcast, we offer the ultimate footballing role. Total power over the beautiful game. I'm Tim Spears. And I'm Kate Mason. And we'll be pondering the important questions such as what moment are you wiping from history? Which flavour pie would be considered the food of the gods? And what are your football commandments? Given the power, how would you change football? This week's football god is Nadam Onuaha. He played 17 professional seasons with Manchester City, with Sunderland, QPR and Real Salt Lake. Since retirement, he is across our TV screens and on the radio. And he also has a memoir, Kicking Back. He was a pretty brilliant guest, I've got to say, Tim. He created, as a football god, a kind of utopia where everything was lovely and he got rid of all of the, the the terrible people who are making football not as good and it was kind of cool to see I thought that lots of our guests have had a different approach to the football god role yeah very different this was more of like concepts rather than individuals and things this was this was getting rid of ideas that have sort of stained the game um it was very sort of good versus evil utopian as you say i feel like there should be like a harp playing over the top of like a, a lot of what he said and we should be sat in the clouds basically we can do we that we can do that anything is possible when you have ultimate power and uh nadam really wielded his in quite a constructive way yeah he, cl- he clearly really thought about it yeah Loved it. So much to get stuck into. Here we go then. Let's get stuck in. Here is Nadam Onuaha, Football God. Man City, that's the team that obviously people will mostly associate you with. But are they the team that you supported? as a young, Are they your team? Well, funny you should say that. So I actually joined their academy when I was 10. And at that point, I didn't really support a team. I'd only been in England probably three, four years after I'd moved over from Nigeria. And I was just watching football, just love football. I remember some of the games from back then, you know, whether it's like watching, say, uh, Ronaldo when he was at Barcelona, thinking, oh, this is amazing, watching other teams doing good things. But then as soon as I joined and I was able to go to Main Road, be able to see some of the players, be able to see some of the management and get a feel for the, the history of the club. That's when I really started supporting them. And yeah, quarter of a century later, here I am, yeah. Main Road. Main Road. Ball Boy. Ball Boy at Main Road in Division 2, Division 1, and then just watched them in the Premier League as well. People who are listening might not even have heard of Main Road. That's how well, everyone's been on a Main Road, surely. Everyone's been on a Main Road, surely. Yeah. I never went to Main Road. It's one of my regrets, <sighs> actually. Um, <sighs> in fact, in fact oh, Kate, 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 you won't like this, but what, White Hart Lane is the other sort of old ground I never went to. The original. Never went to White Hart Lane. No. Oh no. man, you missed out. That was a wonderful stadium. Yeah. I mean, obviously, well, Nadim, you can whack lyrical about White Hart Lane, can't you? Well, because like, no one's going to believe are. me if I say it. it's really great. No, it was it was very very good, and I've got tons of memories from watching them play there. Same way I do respectfully for like hybrids and stuff. You know, a lot of those transitions because they, mm. you know, you've had a fifty plus years of history within a stadium. You see, you remember a lot of players. You remember a lot of the kits, a lot of the goals. I even remember City coming back to win 4-3 there one time, I believe, in the FA Cup. I think that's what it was, but I don't know. I'll erase that memory at some point. But um, yeah, it's a very, very, very fun historical stadium. And there's still quite a few of them now. But I think as time passes, you look at some of those stadia and if they were to create a stadium today, would they make them the same as White Hart Lane or Main Road? Probably not. Fit mm-hmm. the purpose all of a sudden comes out the window, doesn't it? So it's great to have the nostalgia yeah. and the memories, but I do like having a comfortable seat should I ever decide to go to a stadium. Mm. Yeah, I think Goodison's the last sort of one 
from old school. I like going really, to, you know. to Rangers as well. I brought mm. like that, the same kind of square setup, and you're all mm. surrounded on all sides. I really love the vibe there. And I guess all of the stadiums, the modern ones now, are all kind of oval, aren't they? Or circular. Mm. You sound unhappy, Kate. You sound unhappy when you're I'm stadiums. not unhappy. I would never, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fully bought in. But I think there is, for nostalgia value, and then also there's just something about the kind of the closeness of those. I mean, the great thing about the new Tottenham Stadium is that they've built it so that you do feel like you're really very near the pitch. But mm. I don't know. I like the old school as well. Yeah, they're just, they're just a bit similar, the new ones. I remember going to Benfica Stadium last year for the first time, and I was like, am I at the Emirates? It's exactly oh. the same. It's just, you, you get that a little bit with like Sunderland and Middlesbrough. They're just all a little bit too similar. That's why Tottenham's good, because it's, it's different. Yeah, it is. Although I went out to the the one that they played the World Cup final in, in Qatar. And I was like, you guys built the Tottenham Stadium, didn't you? Right. <laughs> it's very similar. <laughs> very similar. Um, so in your role as football garden, Aidan, so our first yes. question is, do you have like a, a team of the gods, like a glory team or season like you know mine as a Wolves fan would be sort of the Wolves 2017-18 Nuno team they'll be immortal for me forever do you have like Mm. a a team that sticks in your mind when you think of that I do I do but as for this whole podcast I do have some sort of left field things as well but the team that sticks in my mind which I probably loved the most was the Pep Guardiola Barcelona team which had Xavi Iniesta and uh, Busquets in midfield and like Messi plus every other star in the world playing there I think the way that they played, it's still mind-bending to this day because you've seen City and other teams play well, but they felt like they were just better than everyone else on planet Earth. And if they played well, there's nothing you could do about it. I think ask Manchester United supporters about a couple of Champions League finals and just how they, you know, they were more so just watching Barcelona as opposed to sort of competing with them. But unless you've got a particular lead into this, I do have a left-field suggestion here as well. Okay. Mm. And the team which I actually want to support and just speak about is a team that doesn't exist. And this team is a team that's made up of the people where I'm not sure if you guys have felt this, but if you ever have to arrange a game of football, there are people who respond straight away with excitement. So they're the ones who want to be there and want to play. I want to make your life easy. And I'd love to support a bunch of players who all step out onto the field with pure joy and glee because they're getting to do the thing that they love more than any other, because that energy will then transfer into the stands and make my job as a fan just that much easier. Wow, that's a good concept. Eh? I like that. Um, yeah, that is such a good concept. Because you want the enthusiasm, but you also... Because so, there's some people on those WhatsApp groups, they reply, yeah, and they're enthusiastic yeah. in the moment. But then it's like, when it gets to game time, there's an issue at work, yeah, or maybe yeah, yeah. they're not yeah. actually on it, whereas you, you want the yeah, ones that fully there committed and they to it. it. They, they yeah. say yes as five seconds after they've sent the message. And they are there 10 minutes before kickoff stretching. They're like, ah, these are the good guys. These are the good guys, yeah. Snacks. If they bought snacks, that would be... Um... <laughs> that would be fun, yeah. Even higher on the agenda for me. I was, I was nervous when I go to do any kind of like kickabout or any exercise at all. I'm always like, am I going to get to the end of this and be hungry? Because it really messes with your, you know, your desire to perform. <laughs> Do you know, I'll be honest, I've not had that thought in retirement when I've played some of my social football, but I do appreciate where you're coming from. <laughs> um, in terms of like the pure enthusiasm aspect, is there also like, you know, a harking back to sort of childhood in that as well, when kids just want to play football and kick that ball around? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, working in the media now and stuff, I've listened to certain interviews and certain players will be asked about. And Guardiola said something last season about Riyad Mahrez, which linked him to pretty much more people than we realised. Because he said with Riyad, he's, he, at the end of the season, he wasn't playing and he was going with Bernardo Silva or Phil Foden or whoever. And he said he, Pep hates having to speak to him to say that, you know, I really want to play you, but I can't. And he said the reason he hates is because Riyad has an amateur spirit. And the amateur oh. spirit is where the only thing that matters is just playing football. And you can talk about the politics of it all, the preparation and so on, but their happiest is when they're out playing football and they've got the ball at their feet. It's the same for like Phil Foden's. We probably have players like that within sides that we know as well. You know, you give them the ball, you give them the pitch and they could not be happier. 
but then you take something away from them and they're no longer like in a position whereby, wow, you know, I'm going to get in for the day-to-day grind. I'm going to enjoy that bit. They just want to play. So I think there is something there from the youth side, but then also just as you get older, some people don't lose that passion. Some people will do anything to play football. And when you have that within you and you get the chance to play it, then, you know, that is essential for a lot of people when they're happiest. It's something that you start to think would happen less as, you know, there's so much football being played today and there's always mm. talk about you know people worrying about overplaying you know like youngsters like Bukayo Saka and, and maybe Foden's another mm. good example you know and so to still have that even though they're being asked to perform in this like box of angst <laughs> that is yeah. modern day Premier League football and still loving it that's a very special thing it is and do you know what I've got to say in regards to the are you playing too much debate as is the case with quite a few debates I feel like it's a lot of people from the outside projecting because someone mm-hmm. will say, oh, that's too many games, that's too many games, but you're not playing the games. Like you don't know how said person feels. You don't know what the medical team know about said player. And if a guy wants to play in every single game, until they start showing signs that they can't do it, then more often than mm-hmm. not, a manager will ask him, are you okay? They'll ask the medical staff, are you okay? And these guys are desperate to play. Like think about Saka, he's young, He's desperate to play in the league for a team that's trying to win it. He's trying to play in the Cups for a team that's trying to win it. He's trying to play for England so that he could potentially win a Euros. At what point does he say, nah, this game's not for me? You know, he's that, he's glass. And then you think about the other perspective. Would you rather sit on the bench for a game? Like, at some point, you could say, oh, this game's not as good as that game and so on. But again, that's the projection from the outside. Because for as much as you can get a great view in the stadium if you're in the seats, one of the worst views is when you're sitting on the bench and you've got no say about the game being just lost and just staring at other people, enjoying things from it, taking somebody on, scoring a goal, making a tackle. You're on the sideline as a cheerleader. Go team. This is fantastic. Hope we get a chance to play again. And while the shirt's yours, like, I think people just enjoy it. Um, is there a teammate that comes to mind when you when you mention that sort of boundless enthusiasm throughout their career? Ooh, that is a very... Uh, do you know what? Yes, there is actually. Ebera Eze. I was with him when we were at QPR together. And he'd just been released, I think, by Millwall or something. One of several teams he'd been released from in the last few years. And in fairness, he needed to have a better understanding of what it was to be like a full-time professional in terms of what the managers wanted. But you take him out onto the field, you give him the ball, and it's joy. He's like a street footballer at times. And obviously, he's refined his craft to where, you know, he's in England international now. But again, you give him the ball, he's happy. You give him the ball to his feet, he's taking someone on, he's gliding is elegant he's everything that you want to see from him but you take that away from him and you, you say oh we've got to focus on running like he can do it but he's not the same person you know you bring out a smile to his face when you allow him to do the thing that he loves more than any other and he can do better than so many other people as well oh a beautiful thing yeah that is lovely um i don't know if this will feed into question two which is your first godly act nidham you've mm. been appointed football god anointed mm. appointed you are taking the throne what are you doing so I apologize if at any point it sounds like I'm ranting, but then also I don't apologize because I'm probably ranting. But uh, I think within the world of football, there are lots of misunderstandings and really strong opinions lacking perspective. So I would like within the world of football now, when you have an opinion about something or someone, you get a chance to see their perspective for a second because I think a lot of humans would do the exact same thing as other people if they were in the same situation. So sometimes... A player might get angry at a fan, but the player doesn't understand what it feels like to be a fan of a club for 30, 40 years and feel like somebody's just robbing your football club. But then a fan doesn't necessarily always understand that a player is having a career the same way someone does when they have a job. And they come in and they want to fall in love with a football club, but if the football club doesn't love them back, then ultimately you'll be like, well, I guess I've got to go. So having a greater sense of empathy between all the key stakeholders within the game would make people understand things more and as a consequence the environment that we would be in would be one which wouldn't be like cheerleadery and you know overly positive but people would be able to accept more of the things that go on instead of ultimately missing the point because you're so blinded by your singular perspective so somehow transferring empathy and perspective into the minds of those who don't understand something that's going on so in the moment that you're about to like scream at a player or, or something just, you would just click, have yeah. that like yeah yeah exactly click like the one that well I say the one there are probably a million but something that gets Millions, me the most yeah. is <laughs> these players aren't trying of course they're trying they're sometimes just not playing well they're sometimes just not winning games of football they're not doing it on purpose 
Because if they were doing it on purpose, it'd be a lot more obvious, trust me. When somebody misses a chance, they did not do that on purpose. When somebody makes a mistake, they did not do that on purpose. And then when you sort of pile on, I think from my perspective, there's a big difference between is somebody no good or is somebody out of form? I think people are very quick to jump on the fact that somebody's no good, but the reality is they're out of form and that form can be due to so many different things and many things which we don't even see ourselves because I've played with tons of players as well. We go out and play on a weekend and they're not fully fit, but they're doing everything they can for their team and for their football club to get out there and battle. But when you're out there now, you don't look the same. People say he's no good, they shouldn't play anymore. Yet still, they've shown more character than somebody who refused to play if they've got like a toenail that's like a bit sore. You know what I mean? So not to name names, but yeah, there's a, there's lots of stuff like that. In reality, and this is a great concept, but how does how, how this happen in the real world? Yeah, well, I'm a god, so is this the real world? <laughs> no, See? it's not. It's, it, See, that's, that's the point. But I think in the real world, like, it can't happen. It won't happen. Because I think in the football world and just the world in general, there is not enough empathy. You know, you people have their perspectives and they're very much entrenched within a certain view. And their view can be a perfectly valid one for them. But then to assume that everybody should see things the same way that you do, I think it misses the point. So I think at times, you know, you can have your opinion, but you should be able to take on other perspectives and have an understanding of why people do what they do. And you could say you'd never do it yourself and you can believe it 100%, but you can believe it 100% because you'll never be in that same situation. So just accept being more accepting of people's decisions. So I played with Jordan Henderson when I was at Sunderland and I'm friends with him to this day. And I think it was a couple of years ago, I was speaking to him about just general press and media and so on. And he had a loose belief that like some of the press was against them. And being someone involved in the city circles, I told that story to one some of my friends who support City and they laughed because they say that everyone's got an agenda against City. So every fan group has believes there's a media agenda against them. But then how can that be true? Every referee's <laughs> got something against them. I'm like, but how can that be every true? Every referee. Exactly. Yeah. So then when I try and explain that, they'll be like, no, no, it's not true because of X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? And that's crazy because you've just explained basically how this works and how it's not really possible, yet still, because you're so entrenched within your position. Well, no, that, that can't be true. This is the reality of the situation, yeah. I remember um, last season, uh, Son Heung-min was going through like a real mm. like, t- tough time throughout the whole mm. season. And I was writing it because I was writing about Spurs and writing about why, why that was and analysing his struggles in front of goal. And he's 30 now, he's over the hill. And everyone else was doing the same. And then in the summer, it transpires, yeah, he was carrying an injury all season. Yep. And he's had some time off and now look at him. But mm-hmm. yeah, without, without knowing at the time. That actually turns mm. out that it was Harry Kane who was holding him back. All yeah, this yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on that. Next question. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up and join millions of sports fans putting their trust in mydieselclaim.com. Proud sponsors of the football gods. Who's football imperfection for you, Nadem? So, having been born in the 80s, seen some really prominent players throughout the Premier League era and the like, see, really focused on, say, European football as well, because I like, I love the Premier League, but I love Syria. I love watching Syria. I remember growing up with watching Gazetta Football Italia on, the, on Saturdays, on the weekend, all that stuff. I remember Revista de Liga, we gay and Balaguer and all this. Like, when almost feels like a badge of honour to me to talk to people and say, oh, I remember one of my favourite seasons ever was when Ronaldo was at Barcelona. And some people are like, Ronaldo was at Barcelona? I said, yeah, Ronaldo was at Barcelona. It's one of my favourite ever. Um, but through all those years, saw some great players, some great defenders, some like real icons, great games and all this. But the most important player that I've seen in my lifetime is Lionel Messi. And the reason I think he's like the, he's the favourite of all time is because say the debate tends to be Ronaldo or Messi and they're both, you know, incredible. That's the bit, you know, which people cut out and just get to this next point and criticise me for it. Ronaldo, the stuff that he is, he's very driven. He's obsessed with his craft, obsessed with his own place within football. He's driven to be the greatest goal scorer of all time and so on. And he works very, very hard at that. So that's why his finishing is as good as he is, his movement and all that. But for Messi, I don't think you can train someone to be Messi. You can't find a template and say, right, see this pass here and play this pass because the pass only makes sense to him, especially when you're out there on the floor. So as I on the grass rather, so when he does something, 
there have been lots of times across the years where I looked at him and says, I would never have done that, could never have done that, can't see how he did that. And so he's playing a different game to me. So much so that like, if we were ever in the same place and someone was asking me, oh, what did I do for a living? I'd probably sell as a milkman or something, not just respect a milkman, <laughs> because I can't, I can't say I did the same thing that he did, because then, like, this is the beauty of people who are involved in football and people who aren't. The ones who aren't involved, they'll see two people that played football and say, oh, you must know him. Do you know this guy? And I could, couldn't bear the thought of someone walking over to Messi saying, oh, this guy said he played football. Do you remember him? <laughs> so yeah, I very much distance myself from that. But he's the one for me. Like he's, he's not from this world. When he's playing the way that he's, when he's absolute best, as I say, Ronaldo does what he does, but the way that Messi sees the game, and the way he plays it, it feels very unique to him. And that's why I think he's, uh, he's from the gods. It sounds like you were talking about the, it wouldn't matter to you necessarily what Messi's achieved. It's not like no. he had to win the World Cup in order to take this status. This no, is about no, no. what you see out there on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even that idea about Messi winning the World Cup, this is a personal gripe about football. It's, it's just so, so fickle. You know, we're all part of this to a certain extent. So Messi individually had a great World Cup. But in the final, after he takes his first penalty, his legacy is now defined by everyone that comes after him. You know, so if the next three players for Argentina missed, then they lose the World Cup. And all of a sudden, it's not like a bookend moment in the career of one of the greatest ever, but he still did everything that he could have done to that moment. You know, you flip that and that's Mbappe who also went first for France. You know, that's the other side of the coin. So I wouldn't necessarily pin it down to say team success like that, but the way that he played, some of the moments that he's had, some of the finishes that he's had, some of the balls that he's played, some of the football he's done, some of the dribbles. Ask yourself how many times you've seen other people do something similar. And the answer is probably not going to be many. It probably helps the fact that he's left footed so he's in the minority anyway. But the answer is very few, if any. And I think that's what makes him one of one in my mind. You don't think he's in the rest of the penalty takers were just carried along by Messi, just inspired to to perform just because they were in the space like the rest well, of Argentina seems to oh, feel no, like no. that was happening. Consig no, considering, <laughs> considering how um, how much apparently the players love him, like are prepared to like run through a brick wall for him and then rebuild the brick wall, then run through it again. Like pressure is knowing that you have to score your penalties for Argentina to win it for the first time since 86 and to allow Messi to win his first World Cup. You know, is that an easy position so to be worse. in? it's worse, yeah. Yeah, I would argue <laughs> that it's worse. worse, yes. I would argue that it's worse. You'd have a good chat with David Seaman, who uh, who chose Cristiano Ronaldo for sort of what you mentioned earlier the about how he, 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 had to, yeah. he had to work for it. And he was like, I remember seeing yeah. him in 2003. Yeah. And he, you know. I totally get that perspective. And the split, I think we're just very fortunate to have seen two people can do what they did. Like even in the middle of their La, La Liga era, when Ronaldo's second top scorer in La Liga with 46 goals, but he's second because Messi's got 50. Like, that's just not normal. So when you choose one or the other, like, there's not a wrong answer as such. But the idea of the work and the graft for it, like, it's very, very impressive and it is inspiring. And I think as a consequence, the mentality around footballers these days, I think you can link it to the fact that Messi and Ronaldo were at the forefront of it all. Because if you go back another 10, 20 years, especially within English football, you know, you're looking at Gazas and some of these people where culturally within English football, it was more about not more about, but the other side of things mattered just as much as say, just the games on a Saturday and the other side being make sure you enjoy yourself or like say, picture the scene if England play a game now and they somehow managed to get a celebration like Gaza did in 96, where they're squirting uh, water into his mouth because they all know that he got too drunk at some day in the past. Like you can't do that anymore because then there's that much professionalism and foreign influence, which I think was primarily driven by Ronaldo and Messi to be fair. And just one more on Messi, what's it like to be in the stadium when he's when he's there do you feel sort of different yeah i played against him one time and i think it it depends who you are because you have to acknowledge him as being one of the most consequential or significant players within football history you know not just for this generation so as a so with that as you see him and if you've seen him playing for like barcelona his is what was his you know spiritual home i was very lucky to play at the new camp one time and it was in like a, a friendly game as such and he started on the bench, but as he was warming up, you could hear, mercy, mercy. Then he walks on the field and it's like, he's not even stepping on the same grass I'm stepping on. I'm like, that's him. <laughs> like, that's the yeah. guy. Because from my perspective, and again, some footballers would be against this. Like I watch a lot of football and 
like I watched La Liga from a distance. I didn't really, I didn't play in the Champions League. I made like one squad, so I didn't play in the Champions League. So to all of a sudden be transferred to a situation I never thought I'd be in, to see him there, like you're playing the game, but then it also doesn't feel real because alongside him is like Iniesta, alongside him is Xavi. And these were some of my favorite players when I was falling in love with the game of football. So to get a chance to play against them, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild experience because other people, you see them, you know how good they are. You see the stadium, you see the club, but here's an individual which basically transcends the sport itself. And you definitely feel that when he's on there. I'm lucky enough to go and watch Barcelona quite a lot at the moment and they still do it. They're still mm, doing it. Exactly. Next up, we're going in the opposite direction. Which player would you damn to hell if you could? Okay. So this one, this is very, <laughs> this is a subliminal dig at a lot of people. And I think you could, anyone can use this template and apply it to whoever they want or whomever they want. And this is mostly for my former teammates but the player I would damn to hell is the player who solely plays for themselves but from the outside is perceived as being great for the team like some of these guys are the most toxic people you could ever wish to play with they're, they're trying to get managers sacked they're like not running back when the team needs to defend you know they're the ones who were writing things online saying how bad things are and they are the cancer but they're saying that they're going to be the ones responsible for getting rid of all the bad energy within the football club. They are the bane of my life, honestly, because you can never talk about them when you're actually in your career, because then it seems like you're the bad guy. But everybody would be agreeing that this person is the one which we'd like to get rid of. But unfortunately, we can't due to the uh, the energy around the player from people who don't know the full story. Well, given it's the end of your career now, Nadim, sounds like you can can be named. Well, I have names. a book out. I have a, I have a book out, Kate, and I think you know exactly who I'm talking about. But you can apply that to uh, you can apply that to many people, and even a, a slightly lesser example of this. Yeah, uh, as a defender, if you are really committed, you end up being around as you concede a lot of goals. Like you'll be on the floor, you'll lose a header, you'll fall over all this stuff because you're fully committed to it. But ones you should watch out for are sometimes when like you defend at a moment and you're all laying out, the keeper gets it. Who does he throw the ball to? He throws the ball to the person that's on the halfway line that never bothered to come back. And that's an example then of you being on the back foot because as that ball gets thrown out to that person, the crowd's like, yeah, come on. And they're cheering on this guy. The rest of you just flipping, just limbs everywhere, blood because you got hit in the nose by the ball and all this stuff. Yeah, so here's this person that decided to, nah, it's not for me, this defending, but I tell you what, I'll get the crowd excited. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's an example of it. Not, oh, don't get me wrong, not everyone needs to come back as such, but there are people who live their life like that and play just in general around a football club just like that. And they're not good for the team, but from the outside, they're perceived as being the best thing for it. Um, you said they, as in, are these characters quite quite prevalent? There are a lot, are there a lot of these uh, Yeah, they will be, around? yeah. I think every... Every club would know the would know the villain, and some of the villains are like, I think they're delusional to think that they've got full support. Others know they're the villain and play to it. I've had a player tell a very senior manager that I had at the time when we were all gathered together for preseason. I had him tell the manager that the tactics he said are not going to work for the season. So he then proceeded to like sabotage it for the full four weeks of preseason. Saw that firsthand, stunned. Jeez. I've seen a guy uh, walk off from training sessions because he's unhappy with the way that like the rules are going against him and stuff. Um, I've, I've seen it all. I've seen a guy send a tweet out saying that two players were bad eggs within the football club, but those two players were two of the nicest people the football club ever had. But because oh, no. they weren't from England and they couldn't fully understand English, then at times in a crisis, xenophobia sort of kicks in and it's very easy to blame the one of the f last people in as being one of the reasons why they need to be one of the first people out. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. But unfortunately, as I say, you can't necessarily offer these arguments out in the open and really be able to address some of these issues. That is really sad. How do they get away with it? Like this. So the, the way they get away with it more often than not, if you don't have a club with really strong culture and structure which comes from above, then say the guy I'm talking about, if he was in the team, he was less trouble than if he was out of it. Because if he was out of it, then when you play head to head in training, he'd go around just kicking and demeaning the people who are supposed to be starting. So he can actually disrupt your preparation from the outside more so right. than he would do from the inside. And so as a consequence, I think a lot of managers I had that, you know, also had this guy, 
it's just easier to give him what he wants. They'd be good players, but people don't really want to play with them, but they're just forced to do it. If you find someone like that you can connect with that's also a good player, then you'll do anything for them. But with certain this guy and other people like it, it's hard work. That's in fact, that's when it becomes work. It's the greatest job, quote unquote, in the world until you start seeing faces who you'd rather not see ever again. But you have to see them all the time. And they're the ones that get the the love from the fans. That's pretty oh, annoying, isn't it? But yeah, it's because they can sort of control narrative. I remember many, many years ago, my team was struggling. This was when we were at City. And we were told to like drop off, play what in theory is nowadays called a low block. But we were struggling and we were a goal down, but we're still in this low block. And the crowd are frustrated, which is fair enough. But the manager gives you the plan, which the players are supposed to go out and try and do, you know, because we've worked at it. And it's not up to you to make up the plan. It's up to you to try and do it according to your own vision while you're on the field. But everyone does it together because then he might work out together. Then one player was sick of it. So he ran off and started just pressing by himself. And then within 60 seconds, he got sent off for a late tackle on someone. And upon being sent off, he sat on the advertising hoardings and the cloud, crowd gave him a round of applause because he said, well, at least he's trying. Right. But in <laughs> but in him trying, we're now down to 10 players. And now we're in a worse situation than we were literally just minutes earlier. But again, that person's getting a round of applause and the rest of us on the field are getting booed for sticking to the plan and uh, you know working hard together. That's infuriating. Yeah. While we're while we're in a sort of a negative mindset, you know, you've got rid of you've got rid of an unnamed player to hell. Yeah. Multiple unnamed players, I think. Yeah. Multiple yeah, unnamed yeah, yeah. players a for multiple people, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Read Nadam's book for more. Um mm. but is there is there a moment from your career or your football support in life that you would wipe from history? Ooh. Uh that's a good question. If it was about my career personally, there are a few last minute or last kick of the game losses where I just like, nah, I can't be doing this. Like, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. One of them being in a Manchester derby where Paul Scholes scores a header and it's just like, nah, this is not for me, football. I can't, I cannot continue to be a part of this monstrosity. But um, <laughs> I think, um, again, I'll go a bit more left field with this. But what I'd like to do, and again, okay. if someone feels like they're being atted or attacked here, then, you know, maybe it is you I'm talking about. I would love the history or the semi-recent history of a fallen giant to be erased so that fans of that football club and the way we perceive them can be more neutral because I like the desire of a team that wants to win something for the first time more so than one that expects to be winning all the time because they did it 10, 15, 20 years ago. Like, it's that's exhausting. Like, because you so did Manchester well back United. then. Because you did well at some point in the past. <laughs> Because you did well at some point in the past. And, you know, if we, if we are to use Manchester United as an example as an in example. this case, yeah. as an example, they were so dominant from way back when. But football, the world, everything's changed to this point. So why do we still have a sense that they should be winning something when in that time, multiple other teams have now gained success? We still believe that you should be winning. For, but for what, right? Whereas I think if Share United... Price. And, Share price, Nina. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you know, well, you tell that to the fans. Whereas if United and other teams <laughs> like that didn't have that success, then they, you'd have 70,000 really hungry fans who appreciate the little things more, instead of overall expect like, well, yeah, we should be in the Champions League with our stadium. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. Uh, well, no, because now you look at, say, you look at the top ten in the Premier League now. You've got ten teams who could genuinely believe that they should be in Europe next season. And you can't really make a strong case against them because you're talking about Villas, Brightons, Newcastles, Chelsea's, you know, Liverpool's, Arsenal, Spurs, City, United, whatever. So when it's that many good teams, why do you expect to be better than all of them? Why? It's just not. It's just not right. From a more benevolent perspective as well, it would be nicer for the fans. Yes, yes, that's that's the point. You would enjoy it more. Like say. The and you know you you used Manchester United as the example there. You I used did, that. Yeah, they you suffered did, those yeah. guys. You they totally suffered. did. You totally did. But like it then affects the wording and this is the one that gets me. Punditry wise, I tend to tune out when someone says this is Manchester United. This is Manchester United. We're talking about because I'm like, well, yeah. what does that mean? Because if you were to say it's because of their success, well, look at any team that's had success over the last few years and ask, do people talk about them in the same way? Did we say, this is Leicester City? 
this is Leicester City. No, we didn't. Even though they've won a league and an FA Cup within the last, like, say, 10 years of, like, football itself. So, yeah, that's my um, that's my little mini rant over for now. It changes the fan dynamic massively. I remember as a, I grew up as a Wolves fan in the 90s and mm. Wolves were the biggest team in the country in the 50s and that still was affecting the atmosphere 40 years later because we were mm. in the championship when I was growing up and everyone was expecting that we should win the league. Mm-hmm. And we stayed in that goddamn division for 14 years. And it affected <laughs> expectations, atmosphere, managers got sacked as a result, players got bombed out as a result. That whole, exactly. you know, and I know exactly what I mean, the, the, the purity of a first title, like the Leicester title win is the, is the obvious go-to, but the purity mm. of that season, even goals sounded different in terms of how they were celebrated. It just meant it's so true. much to everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. You should do it like Tottenham and just never win anything. Then it'll be fine. Everyone's really chilled about that. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. It's not that. This isn't the pod for this. Don't do this, Kate. This isn't the pod for this. Uh, right, we've got one more thing to banish or to to destroy before we get to um, how we're going to be watching football, and it is, yeah, whatever you want. Choose a thing to okay. banish from football. Okay, so this is from the playing perspective and I know this could be personal to me but I know it's unlikely not personal to me okay so I'm gonna lay a foundation and say that I don't hate referees okay the job that they do is one which I can't do myself because I don't know the law book I do not hate referees the job that they have is tough because you can't see everything but you have to make a decision on everything yeah I get that people make mistakes I get that 100% but when I was a captain at QPR, this was the time when they said that only the only the captain could speak to the ref at certain points. So that season, because I'm polite, I'd always, if I didn't know their name, I'd say, excuse me, ref. Excuse me, ref, yeah? The more times I say it and the more they ignore me, the more I'm getting more and more frustrated here because I'm the only person that should be allowed, to, that's allowed to talk to a referee. Excuse me, ref, excuse me, ref, they're not listening. And then they get to a point where a few of them told me to go away oh okay oh my god I've left planet earth at this point the rage has hit like 10 and I think referees who are doing it purely for the power should be removed from the face of planet earth because they're the worst thing for the game of football and you can t- you can smell them straight away because they want to be saying things and doing things to show that they have power over you and if there was even a game once we were playing at home when I was at QPR and I was trying to talk to the ref, trying to talk to him, trying to talk to him, because there's so many decisions within football where you actually have a better perspective than the referee does themselves, because in theory, you were just there. The ref doesn't always see everything really clearly. So I'm trying to say it, and I'm not trying to overturn the decision, but when a referee knows that they might have made a mistake and they're open to that, then it softens your approach towards him, yeah, or towards them. But in this game, I was talking, and the ref said with 15 minutes to go, if you talk to me again, I'm going to book you, is what he said to me as captain of the team. A minute later, I was going forward for a corner and he was having a joke with two of their players. And I was like, nah, 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 nah. I was like, no, 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 no. I can't, I can't do this. I can't, again, I can't do this anymore. This game is a monstrosity. I must leave it and retire as soon as possible. So yeah, that's what I'd remove. I'd remove the people who are in the middle who are doing it just for power as opposed to allowing players and fans to have an experience which maybe they'd enjoy because they'd deem it to be more fair than anything else. This is potentially a big, I don't want to go down, I'm a bit nervous about talking about referees generally, to be honest, because I'm very pro, like you, Nadam, I'm very pro-ref, like I feel like we need to protect them and and sometimes, you know, it feels like just, you know, if you think about it in the context of they're getting paid so much less, they've got so much less influence, they're not allowed to talk, blah, blah, blah. And I know number of very nice refs who are doing it for the good of the game but given how much of a hard job it is now and how much shit you get just for like mm. making it making perfectly good decisions it's mm. hard to think who would want to become a ref at this point in time other than megalomaniacs who do just want to be in the middle and tell a bunch of footballers <laughs> what to do yeah it's um again i've worked with some refs who've been really good and some who will admit to perhaps making mistakes and so on and like when a ref gets like that where they admit they've made a mistake or whatever it literally diffuses the whole situation because all of a sudden you're the bad guy if you carry on with your sort of like unhappiness about a situation they get a ref be like oh maybe i got that wrong you're like oh damn it okay maybe you did Uh, i'll just go over here and just do some defending but again with um with referees 
the job that they have is really tough. And I'm not somebody that says, says former players should ref because I don't think they should. Because when you have former players that will referee, that they won't referee according to the law book, they referee according to their feelings. That's so, not for me. But again, the whole referee thing and a point I want to make, really want to draw this down. When you see players, quote unquote, surround the referee, okay? It's not that deep. And the reason I say it's not that deep is because the referee has control of that situation. If he wants to book someone or send someone off, that's what they'll do. Some referees are more okay with it than you think, yeah? And also, you're very much caught up in the emotion of the game that's going on with an audience of 50, 60, 70,000 or whatever. And some people say that's wrong. It's wrong for grassroots and so on. I've yet to see a player in my time bring a knife to a game to go and try and deal with the referee. But also, when everyday people play games at Christmas and they get angry and frustrated and fall out with family members, imagine that with tens of thousands of people watching and you're getting frustrated because you think someone's breaking the rules of the game or whatever, or you think you're being hard done to. Why is it okay for you to be that emotionally attached to a game of checkers or whatever? But then when you're playing in a game of football where literally every little thing can make you think like it's a conspiracy against you, which is now going to affect your career. Because if you lose this game, you'll go down and your pay will get cut in half and then you get released by the club and then you'll be lost in the wilderness and have to move your family out of whatever. Like surely that's grounds for some level of emotion based around decisions, which also the crowd are getting frustrated by. Because the last time I saw players getting frustrated, I'm pretty sure I saw the crowd going with them. So I just want to get that out there. We're not all villains. We just want to win a game. And unfortunately, sometimes we feel like it's going against us. That was brilliant. I've never heard football, I've never heard football compared to Christmas checkers, but I totally get it. Exactly, it's um, a thing. It's definitely a thing. That stuff is ruthless. I once got Park Lane, rip, one of my mates rips Park Lane because he was so upset that I got a hold of it in Monopoly. <laughs> there you go, there you go. But we've got anger issues. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> yeah, Bobby. Anyway. <laughs> um, can I just ask, on the, on the conversations with the referee, yeah. what do you want to get out of that? Do you want an understanding of the decision? Do you want an yes. acceptance of a mistake? Or is it a, yeah. an opportunity to vent? Obviously, every situation is different. But if you see like a standard one, and say someone gives a free kick against you or something, you say to the referee, what, what was that for? And then they'll give the reason. If you think the reason's wrong, you're like, oh my God, what have you seen there? That's wrong, you know what I mean? But you've expressed your opinion that you believe the decision to be wrong because stop me if I'm wrong, but feedback is a big thing within life, not just football. So if you say nothing, then you believe it's the right decision. You just move on. Like if it's a goal kick, nobody says, oh, it's not a goal kick if it is a goal kick. But when you start to question it, the referee can have a different perception of actually things that he thinks that they've seen. Because more often than not, if you were to ask them, did you see something 100% clearly? The answer would be no. So maybe there is a chance that they got a decision wrong. Maybe they misjudged a certain moment. Maybe then they'll say, like, especially, I remember clear as day, it was Chris Powell once had a penalty given against him. I think when he was at Charlton against Everton. Ball went up and it hit him in the head, but his arms were up. The ref said it's handball, gave a penalty. So he says to the ref, well, it hit my head. The ref said, oh, it's a penalty. If Chris Powell just walks off after it's hit him in the head and his team just conceded a penalty and lost because of it, you're probably asking more questions of Chris Powell than you are the referee for making the decision. So if you think something's wrong, it's instinctive to want to give immediate feedback as soon as the referee says the, the reason which you believe to be uh, completely false. But on the flip side, you've got to imagine, based on all of these fine margins, you've got to imagine that the best way at the moment for footballers on the pitch to react is to question absolutely everything. Because you're talking about it from a sincere perspective there, aren't you, Nate? I'm like, yeah. I'm sincerely trying to figure it out. But actually, if I'm if I'm playing and I'm trying to get an edge, you should question everything. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you, should. you could do, but you should, you should, but not everyone's capable of doing that. So there is a difference between being fouled and winning a free kick, yeah? When you are okay. fouled, yeah. it makes you angry. When you've won a free kick, it makes you happy because that's what you intended to do. Like being fouled is when you're running away in midfield and someone clips your heels. And that's when you see people lose their mind. When you win a free kick, win a penalty, is like Luis Diaz against uh, Ashley Young in the Merseyside derby, where he knows that the tackle's going to come. So he puts his leg in front of it as to win a free kick, which benefits himself and the team. The intention was not to get past them at that point. It was to win something. Because according to the logic which we loosely put out there sometimes, it's like if you have a one-on-one -on -one and the keeper saves it and he goes wide, did you win a corner or did you miss a chance? As opposed to when you're standing in the corner and like there's a player there and you want a corner so you kick it off them to go out for a corner, that's winning a corner. The other one's missing a chance. 
So there's a little nuance in the way that we see things. And when it comes down to free kicks and stuff, that's a, that's another example. And that's what upsets me actually as a player. And Ashley Young will probably say this. You know when someone's just won a free kick against you. Uh, you know yourself as well, Kate, with Harry Kane. How many free kicks did he want? Did he win where he's in front of someone is like, oh, all of a sudden he's lost all his speed. Oh no, Harry Kane, someone's going from behind. Oh, oh well done, Harry. Well done. You were clearly fouled then. Oh, or maybe you just won a free kick. And as a player, imagine how annoying that is. That, that's when you want to get to a referee. Can you not see what he's doing? He's manipulating your mind. The rest of that, go away. It's obviously a foul. <laughs> In that tone as well. That's so annoying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My Diesel Claim sponsors the football gods. Check if you are eligible for significant compensation for free at mydieselclaim.com. Awesome. Right, changing approach slightly to food. Food of the gods. Is there a particular food that comes to mind? I think in, in this world that I'm in now, like being from... Nigeria, I love West African food and stuff, but I know that not everyone else does. I think it, it's got a bit of an acquired taste as such, even though it's Jollof, magnificent. Jollof, no, come on, Jollof. No, not, not everyone. In this world where I get extra hot from Nando's, it freaks some people out. So what I would say is, culturally, so I'm reading Mike's book and I'm hearing, Mike Richards' book, and I'm hearing the story about him being in Florence and the culture that those players had where they'd just be out in their piazzas after training and they'd stay there till the sun sets and the weather's good. And I think I'd want people to experience that. I'd want people to ex- to be a part of a culture where eating outdoors and eating good food was the norm, as opposed to something which you is almost like a wealth thing, which you require the ability to do. And again, if it's good weather, it's good food, it's social. You can hear, how nice is it to be in a piazza and to hear just the buzz of just people around, talking, walking, having a good time, smiles on people's faces, debating penalty decisions, all that stuff. I feel like if you take people outside eating maybe some sort of pasta, then you can sort of overcome things a little bit more. So Italian would be the cuisine, but in an environment which is like being somewhere in Italy and whatever, where it is standard to not even ask for a table inside. And in relation, oh. to, in relation to football then, would this be perhaps like a post-match meal, debating some decisions, reliving goals? Do you know what? Possibly. And I know... <sighs> I suppose this, this is where it couldn't work as such because stadium food is very much stadium food and being in the terraces is very much being in the terraces. But I like also the idea that, say, we could sort of spin this off. In America, the whole tail, tailgating concept where you're there hours beforehand, it'd be yeah. nice if, like, at stadiums, there were just, like, loads of eateries, outdoor eateries, like food festival-type things, and people just hanging around, getting ready for the game, and it's more relaxed instead of this like late drive to get in there, make sure you get your pie, sit down with your pint and just enjoy your food. And then if you have all those eateries and stuff outside before, you can have them out there after. And then maybe then, because again, this is a team full of people that you really like, those players would be more likely to be outside amongst the fans enjoying the food because you're all there with the same mentality. Oh, it sounds beautiful. See, full circle. I've got this, I've locked it. I've teed this here. <laughs> I've got I've it locked up. I've got it, let's say, yeah. And you're watching this game as well. You've got your Italian food all set up and everyone's having a great time and a bit of a chat. Who's your perfect people to watch it with? Obviously, not everybody gets the chance to do this personally, but I think it's great to watch football and sport with kids because there's so much, there's so innocent compared to the way that, say, an adult looks at things because an adult can look at things based on the past year, month, or, you know, lifetime. I don't like this player because X. I don't like this team because X. I don't like this referee because X. Whereas a, a youngster is just, more often than not, they're just watching the game. And they're not, what they're like celebrating, oh, is it throwing? Oh yeah, we've won a throwing. Like that level of purity, I think at times is what you need to sort of take the edge off because you can be so involved in, say, the politics of any particular situation or any particular person. And the way that I see it, like, Again, I'm obviously biased because John Henson's my friend, but when he's playing for England, it was kids cheering him and adults booing him, but then he's still just playing football for England. So for them, they just see someone out there that represents them, but adults see something that's bigger, which they like or don't like or whatever. A childlike innocence is something which I think we do need. And that helped me and lots of other people, I think through their careers, people who were lucky enough to have children. Because as soon as a game was done, when you saw your kids or whether you got home or whatever, 
the kids didn't really care about the wider context of the fact that you've lost your 16th game in a row and you're about to get relegated. You know, they just said, oh, so are you playing today, daddy? Uh, so can we go and play a game? And that there, that level of innocence, it, it's what you need, I think. And if you're watching football as well, you're seeing things and you're very little. You're seeing everything for the first time. So it's yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. Oh, what is so this? exciting. It's like, oh, what, is, what does this mean? What does that mean? Oh, who's, who's shot here? Did they score? Who's winning? Which team's wearing this? Oh, I like that kit. Oh, that's a nice ball. You know, that type of stuff there. Obviously, it doesn't have to be you as an adult that feels those same emotions. But it reminds you that you were once a child who had those same emotions and you likely enjoyed football a lot more close, going back closer to that time. I was at Wickham v Bolton last night, uh, randomly, and there's, there was a girl sat a couple of row behinds, and um, she just wanted them to give the ball to number 11, because he was the quickest player. He played for Bolton, and we were in the Wickham end, but she was just like, just give it to number 11. <laughs> Constantly. I love oh, it. Do you, do you remember your first game you watched live, Naden? Do you know what? I don't, but it would have been at Main Road. Also, I was lucky because I was a ball boy. So from like, I think 12, That's 13, cool. I was ball boy in front of the North stand, which was the stand which had the away fans in. And just getting a chance to like see it all there. It's an incredible perspective. And I also remember our little doorway was right next to the tunnel. So sometimes if you peered your head out, you could see the players coming out from both sets. You're hearing the music playing and you go out before them, whatever, but you're hearing like that theme music for your team. It's like, it's pretty cool to be fair. And I know I try and be really cool now and be like, nah, nothing excites me. But that was pretty exciting back in the day. Right, we'll move on to music, a soundtrack. Is there a song that springs to mind? This could be the terrace anthem or an actual an actual song, but what's, what's your um, football song of the gods? Again, I apologise here because my interpretation of these questions was probably a bit different to what other people do. But we want like that. that. The way I would like it is that having experienced this a couple of times, when football becomes the best thing in the world is when you're playing, you're playing well and you're winning. And then you can add the cherry on top and have thousands of people sing a song about you. That there is truly, truly amazing. Because it's, it's so humbling when you think about, say, your journey to get to that point. You know, most people in life, if not all, want to be liked. But the, here's a bunch of strangers, thousands of strangers that, like, adore you. Same way, like, when you see someone with a shirt with your name on the back, it's amazing. Even if it's one, it doesn't need to be, like, a thousand, a million or whatever. And when they sing a song for you, you feel a real connection. There's a real sense of community and you use a real sense of pride because they appreciate the job that you do. Again, I was lucky when I, I was at QPR. So my nickname uh, through my career was Chief. It was never one that I picked myself. It was one that basically was lazily given to me when I was in the academy by one of the coaches but it stuck with me because people didn't really want to say my name or try and say it so just call me chief it's important to point out that you didn't make people say it call you chief no i never never in a million years would i introduce myself as chief <laughs> never actually people call me chief i was like nadam yeah. no one calls you chief no, what are you on about exactly everyone would call me chief because they just didn't want to say nadam or whatever but at the last game last home game of the season the year that i left i had my two to our two daughters at this point and one more son was on the way and it's the lap of honour it's my last ever game and I'm leaving and I'm hearing people just saying chief and I thought you know after six and a half years of which some of those years have been horrendous they appreciate what I stood for in that time and I think if fans believe that the job you're doing is one that represents who they are as people then like you've made it, you've completely made it out of that club and you will be welcome back. So I think if you could find a way whereby every player had the chance to have a song sung about them, then you know that every player that's out there would feel immensely proud to wear the shirt. And they're playing for more than just their teammates. They're playing for everyone associated with the football club. Because when it's hard is when like fans just don't like you. And you think, well, why don't you like me? Because I'm trying my best. But you know that when you have that connection, you know that they understand everything that you're going through. And if you do something wrong, you make a mistake, you miss a chance, you miss a tackle, you know that they will be supporting you as opposed to telling you to uh, politely leave the stadium and never come back again. So yeah, when people sing about you, I think that's it. So everyone gets that chance and that's going to be the song. A, terrace, a song on a terrace for every player on the field. That's adorable. That must have been so cool. So your your daughters, were they, I'm trying to think, were they, they, they They're too young to have understood. On. No, they're too young uh, to have understood what was going on. I'm completely but, way too young to have understood, but uh, I, I know what's going on. But you knew. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome that they were with you, yeah. Yeah, legacy-wise, you can always obviously have the measure by how many trophies and stuff did you win. 
most people will never come close to winning a trophy. Most people will never play at Wembley. Most people will never play in Europe and so on. But then what's your relationship like with the clubs that you played for? If you arrived, would people welcome you back? And I think as I retired, I'm in a position where every place I'd been to, I'd be welcome back. And that is something I feel immensely proud about because that's with the staff, that's with the fans. And that's because I've always tried to be a good person. I've tried to be a good teammate. I've tried to be a good worker for the whichever club that I've been at. And I think people understand that's who I am. And that's something that makes me, oh, I'm welling up now. Like people get it. I, I, I mean, well, so you see, I'm not the bad guy. I know I came in a window where there were a few bad guys, but I'm not the bad guy. I'm the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the football god here for the last for the last question of today, which is which game would you like to make last forever? Okay. So I don't know if people would agree with me here, but for those those 80s babies out there, I feel like we all remember the Premier League in the early 90s and they probably remember quite a few of those Liverpool, Newcastle 4-3s and how mm. exciting it felt at the time. And even though we don't remember the full context of the game, we probably remember like Kevin Keegan draped over the advertising hoardings at Anfield like, oh God, you know, Stan Collymore's done this and whatever. Like those were iconic games and there's something about that score 4-3 which is really exciting. For some reason, it doesn't hit the same as I remember like Arsenal winning 5-4 against someone with Arsh having scoring four or like a really good 3-2, but a 4-3 feels great. So a game that I would like to continue is any game where it's like 4-3 and it's that exciting where attacks are on top and I would let the game carry on until one team quits. And I'd love it if like, they just say, I'm not quitting. Like, because those teams say, think of it. If you win 4-3, best feeling ever. If you lose 4-3, it's like, well, we ran out of time. Well, here's time. What are you going to do with it? So you keep going, you keep going. And then maybe if you get a couple of goals down, it's been like two days of playing this game. I think that'll be the point where I'll tune out. But until someone says enough's enough, then just give me more. Just, just inject it into my veins. I love a high scoring game. And some people say, oh, but you're a defender. As a defender, I'd rather be on a pitch where I know my team's capable of scoring than one whereby I hope my team can keep a clean sheet. Because that's genuinely exciting because you never believe that you run out of time when you know you've got the capability of scoring goals. So is there a, is there a 4-3 that sticks out from your career, your favourite scoreline? That I won in? Uh, no, but I've had a couple of like last-minute winners which made me feel very yes. Yeah, let's just say that, yeah. But yeah, never a 4-3 because, you know, I mean, why would I concede three or four goals? That's not how... Great point. That's not yeah, me. No, exactly. That's not yeah. yeah, really good point. Yeah, should, actually yeah, quite disrespectful to him. Yeah. <laughs> I've conceded five and six, but never three and four. Yeah. Never, never three and four, yeah. <laughs> Nader, I think that's that is the moment to end. We we've we have run out of time um in this mm. in this game of you being the infinite footballing god. Thank you so much. You've been pretty uh I think balanced in the end. Like you weren't kind of striking everyone down or changing things entirely. No. I think as you look back at it, I've probably left a little bit on quite a few people, but because I mixed it in with other things, it's like getting some like kids' vegetables in mixed amongst other things. There's a lot in there. But I think you'll discover it all in time. A ton of Easter eggs about a ton of people. More, Super. more to come. I like. There's so many layers to this. I love it. Yeah. Mm, mm. Wow! Thank you. You're the best. Pleasure. Great to see you guys. Sign up and join millions of sports fans putting their trust in MyDieselClaim.com. Proud sponsors of the football gods. Okay, right. Shall we recap Nadam's Ten Commandments as football god? His glory team is his enthusiastic mates who answer his kickabout requests, uh, just to get that real sense of, uh, of childlike enthusiasm in football. His first godly act is to enable empathy across the whole game. His idea of football perfection is Lionel Messi. The person or persons he would damn to hell is selfish players who only think of themselves. And in terms of wiping from history, he would get rid of a team whose reputation is better than they think they are. And we don't have any idea who that team is specifically <laughs> because he absolutely did not name the team. Neither did you, uh, Kate. Banishing... <laughs> no, no one named <laughs> No one named him. Banishing from football, his plan is to get rid of referees who tell you to go away or kind of referees where the power is going to their head. Godly food is a whole concept. It's the idea that perhaps if you could just eat, you'd be in a piazza, you'd be in Italy before watching any game of football and you'd go and eat outside in the sunshine, have some lovely pasta and chill. He'd watch 
the game of football with his kids because again it's a bit of a theme is this like joyful enthusiasm naive enthusiasm and love for the game and his song the soundtrack to his his godly game of football is a song about he'd like to have all of the players on the pitch getting a song about them his ones was just the the, chief. the chant chief <laughs> nice uh, and a game that's lasting pretty much forever uh, is uh, is the game effectively that has the energy of a 4-3 game um, until one of the sides quits so it's lots of goals and in the end somebody gives up so it's not infinite time but he did reference a time frame of like two days and then in the end they give up so i think we can get on board with a lot of this a two-day four-three thriller yeah we love that <laughs> oh it was an amazing one uh, it's been so great to have you with us i'm kate mason i'm tim spears and you'll be listening to football gods the football gods is a voice work sport production for wolverhampton wanderers Podcast Network.